At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you've been with us the last number of weeks, you know that we have been walking through a sermon series called The Wise of Worship. Why do we do what we do when we gather? Why do we gather at all? Why do we sing when we gather? Why do we have baptism like we're going to have next weekend? Why do we have communion like we had last weekend? Why do we pray like we just did? Why do we have a sermon like we're getting ready to have? And ultimately, why do we even take up an offering? This is what we've been exploring as we've begun 2024 together. Today we're going to be in part seven of this series, the last installment of this series, as we talk about why do we take up an offering? Why do we take up an offering? Now, ultimately, of course, we we take up an offering because God has blessed us. Everything we have is from him, and we're merely a steward of his resources. So we, we give as an expression, an acknowledgement, an act of worship, understanding that God owns it all. But how do we participate? And how does a gift that we give translate into an act of worship? We're going to to see that today as we look at a passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 12. But before we get there, I want to just ask a simple question. And that question is this. In what economy is $1.25 greater than $10,000? In what economy is $1.25 greater than $10,000? Now, when I say that, uh, we begin to translate that into a value of some kind, don't we? I mean, what does $1.25 get you? $1.25 will buy you a big gulp. But $10,000 will buy you a used car. $1.25 might buy you a newspaper. But $10,000 could buy you a printing press. $1.25 might buy you three containers of ramen noodles. But $10,000 would feed a family of four for how many months? In what sense is $1.25 greater than $10,000? And who would ever suggest that $1.25 is greater than $10,000? Well, friends, the answer to that question is Jesus. Jesus would suggest that $1.25 can be greater than 10000 And we see that in Mark chapter 12, in the last week of Jesus' life on this earth, when he interacts with some people who are giving an offering in a service in the temple area. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. And as we look at those verses together, we're going to reflect on what it looks like for our offering to be an act of worship. And we're going to see that by learning from Jesus' statements in Mark 12. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. I'm going to read these verses for us, and then after I read them, I'll make just one observation from it today that we'll unpack with the remainder of our time. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41, says this. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. 
And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Now, friends, in these few verses today, I want us to see one primary point. So what is that point? What is that principle? That principle is this. Generosity is a matter of proportion, not portion. Generosity is a matter of proportion, not portion. Now, how does that principle show up in these verses? Well, it's helpful for us, again, to remember the context. And the context of Mark 12, again, is the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. In Mark 11, verses 9 to 11, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting around Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And when he entered into Jerusalem, he went right to the Temple Mount area. Now, the crowd thought that they were going to crown Jesus an earthly king. But Jesus knew that he was going to the cross. He was going to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. So the context of these verses is Jesus moving towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. But what did Jesus do between Palm Sunday and Good Friday? Well, apparently he went to the temple area. And in the temple area, he began to teach. And one of the things that Jesus was teaching was he was teaching in parables about what they would expect to happen next. And in one of the parables that Jesus tells, he, he tells a story about a, a son of a wealthy landowner who goes to the land and is killed by the tenants. It says, and they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. This reminds us that Jesus was well aware of what awaited him as he went to Jerusalem that, for that last week of his life. He knew that he was going to be killed by those who were the earthly leaders of the vineyard at that time. And yet Jesus didn't hide from them. He kept coming back again and again every day to the temple. So they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to them. Jesus isn't hiding. He's hanging out with them. He's teaching them. He's instructing them. Daily, he was doing so. And one of the things that Jesus was doing as he was interacting with these leaders was he was exposing their hypocrisy. We, we see in Luke chapter 19, a parallel account of what was happening in this last week. It says that Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus showed up at the Temple Mount area and he sees that the scribes and the chief priests have made the temple not about the worship of God, but about making money. They had developed a very elaborate system to exploit those worshipers who came there and to extract from them every last coin. They required everyone to buy their sacrifices from them, and they marked up the prices to exorbitant levels. And they even had a, their own currency. Can you imagine that? They had their own currency that they had to trade their money into in order to buy the sacrifice. And so they would exploit them yet Again, Jesus sees this going on and he doesn't just wink at it, but he calls it out. And he says, 
What are you doing? This is not what this place is for. And he, he drives them out of the temple area. In Mark chapter 12, he makes comments about those who were conducting this kind of business. Jesus says in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues in the places of honor at the feasts. Jesus said the religious leaders of, of his day they looked like they were winning the religious game. They had beautiful robes. They had prominent seats. They were honored among men. But Jesus saw through their actions, he saw their heart, and he makes this assessment of them. He says that though they are celebrated in this world, they're actually people who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. What was Jesus saying? when he says that they were devouring widows' houses, was he actually saying that the chief priests and the scribes would go in the middle of the night into the home of widows and take their possessions? No, that's not what he was saying. What he was saying was they were presiding over a system that was taking the last pennies of poor widows and exploiting them for their own personal gain. Jesus called it out. He saw it for what it was. So after confronting the religious leaders of his day in the Temple Mount area, Jesus finally takes a seat. So where did he sit? Well, Mark chapter 12, verse 41 tells us that he sat down opposite the treasury. Now, what, what is the treasury? The treasury was a section of the Temple Mount area where anybody could go. And it was a place where there were a number of different receptacles around the outside of this area, 13 to be exact, that were, that were chests that had horn-like tops to them where people would come and place their offerings, especially at a time like the Passover, which is what's happening here. So during the Passover, many people are coming to this area and they're bringing their offerings with them to put their offering in one of these 13 receptacles in the presence of all the people. Now, when we give our offerings today... They are fairly discreet, aren't they? I mean, what does it sound like when we give our offerings today? Well, it's pretty silent. When, when you give online, it's, it's, a, it's a keystroke. People don't see it. They can't hear it. When you, when you give in one of these boxes, you, you're, you're often putting paper in there. It makes no sound when it goes in. But think about the first century. When people would go to the treasury area to make their gift, there's, there's 13 chests, horn-shaped tops, and they would give their offerings that would be composed of metal coins. And the heavier the coin, the greater the value. The more the coins, the greater the value. And so Jesus is watching this production of people showing up to give their offerings in the Temple Mount area, and the people who are given a lot are coming in with big bags. Imagine wheelbarrows full of coins. Their servants coming in behind them, bringing all of their wealth to give. And when they put those heavy metal coins in those chests, everybody knew about it. Now, I know none of you at 945 at Wildwood on a Sunday have ever been to a casino, but you might have seen one on TV. And, and when you think about a, a casino and the sounds of a casino, people are putting coins in machines, 
And then if they hit a jackpot, the coins come out the bottom and make a lot of noise. This is what it sounded like and looked like to give in the first century in the Temple Mount area. So Jesus is sitting opposite watching people putting their money in the offering box. Hearing people put their money in the offering box. And when rich people gave, you know what, that, what, what, what would happen? There'd probably be some, whoa, look at that. Now that's a gift. Are you kidding me? That, that made noise for like 20 minutes. It's still ringing. Look at all those people carrying those bags of money in. That's unbelievable. It was quite a show so that the givers would be celebrated. Their name on the building. Jesus is watching this unfold. But he makes no comment. Jesus doesn't say, wow, look at that. He's just watching. But then, well, first of all, this large sum, all this money, maybe $10,000 gifts or maybe even more. But Jesus, again, makes no comment. After making no comment there, eventually a poor widow comes up. How do they know she was a poor widow? Well, she would have looked very unimpressive. Clothes, maybe tattered. Didn't have any appearance of wealth. This poor widow comes up, and she puts two small copper coins, which made about a penny in the offering. Now, when when expensive offerings go in, it made a lot of noise, and it was very visual. But two little coins? In the original language, it's the word lepta. It's just a a little bitty coin, and it it represented a very specific amount. Two lepta was the equivalent of about 164th of a denarii. So you're like, oh, thanks for telling me that. That really explains it. What's 164th of a denarii? Well, 164th of a denarii is basically 164th of a day's wage. So if you imagine somebody working eight hours and making $10 an hour for our world today, and then take 164th of that, what do we have? We have about $1.25. And she's able to conceal that offering in the palm of her hand. And when she puts it in the container, it's very light. It's very thin. Their money was actually weighted to the value of the money. So those coins were very almost paper-like. They would make virtually no sound as they went in. No one acknowledged it. No one saw it except one. Jesus saw the gift that the widow gave. And when Jesus sees this gift and he sees this $1.25, he calls to his disciples. He says, hey guys, come here. Come here. Come gather around me. I want to make an observation that I want you to know. I want you to hear. I want you to write it down and tell every generation that follows about one of the offerings that was given here today. The offering of that widow. He says to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. What was Jesus saying? Was he really saying this? Was he really saying that her $1.25 gift was greater than the $10,000 or more gifts that had been given? What Was he really saying that a newspaper or a big gulp or, or three bags of ramen noodles were greater than groceries for, for many months or a printing press or a used car? How could Jesus make such a statement? Well, friends, he makes such a statement because he measures generosity differently than we do. So how would we think about how Jesus measures generosity by looking at this passage? Well, the first thing I would say is this. 
Jesus does not measure generosity against his need. Now, now we think of generosity many times related against some need. So that if an organization has a, a shortfall at the end of the year, and that shortfall is X, then whatever gift, however close it moves you to X, then that is generous because it is meeting a need. Or if there is a, a capital campaign raising money for a building, and the building costs X dollars, if somebody gives enough money to, to pay for all of that building, it's considered a very generous gift. But when Jesus talks about generosity, he doesn't measure it against his need. Why? Why? How many needs does Jesus have? Can you do this? This is how much need Jesus has. He has no needs. Every other organization, every other person is going to measure it against some situation that they're dealing with, but Jesus doesn't because he has no need. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's measuring generosity not against his need. He's measuring it against something else. He's also not measuring it against other people's gifts. He didn't look at hers and say, is that value greater than that value? Is that $1.25 greater than 10000 He doesn't compare the two gifts. And he doesn't just compare it to what looks impressive. He doesn't just say, that's quite a show, that gift. That's really noisy, that gift. No, he's looking not to what is impressive by a worldly standard, but he's looking at something else. So what is he looking at? If he's not looking at the size of the portion, what's he looking at? Well, first of all, he's looking at our motivation. Jesus saw the heart motivation of this woman. He did not just look at the externals, he looked at her heart. And he saw in her heart a spirit of generosity that he celebrates. He also compared what she was giving to her ability, not to what others gave, but what she would be able to give. To give. He compared it merely to her ability. In this way, he was looking at the proportion, not the portion, but the proportion. Again, verse 44, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. Everything she had, all she had to live on. It's, it's repeated in order to draw emphasis, to draw our eyes, to draw our attention to that point. She was giving all that she had. She had two coins. She could have kept one and still been very generous. She gave both. An amazing, amazing example is provided for us here. By saying that she gave it all, it was saying that in order for her to eat, she would have to go either make more money or have someone give her something else. She had nothing left in her pocket, nothing left in her cupboard. She'd given it all. William Kelly says of this passage, he says, the test of liberality is not what is given, but what is left. Generosity measured not by, by some single amount or even a percentage, but about what is left. And J.C. Ryle makes this statement. He wants us to know that some people who appear to give much to religious causes in God's sight give very little, and that some who appear to give very little in God's sight give a great deal. He's looking not to the portion, but he's looking to the proportion. 
Now, is this to say that, that, that all of us are to give all that we have every time we come to church? No, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is Jesus wants us to not fall into the trap of thinking in worldly terms. That generosity is not merely a matter of the portion and the size of that compared to others in the world, but it's compared to our heart response to God. So what does this passage teach us about generosity? What's it teach us about generosity? Well, a few things. The first thing it teaches us is that Jesus sees our giving. Now, does that make us squirm a little bit? It shouldn't. Jesus sees everything that we do. He sees it all. But as it comes to our giving, we certainly see that he sees our giving. Even in the last week of his life, when he is just a few days from going to the cross, he still paused in the temple and observed people's gifts. He's not distracted. He still is shepherding us and encouraging us and caring for our hearts. He sees our giving. I love what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, 4. He says, so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We're not to give in such a way so that everyone else will celebrate us. We're to give in such a way knowing that our Heavenly Father observes our gift, sees our heart. Jesus continued in the Sermon on the Mount and reminds us why this matters It's not because God wants our money. It's because God wants our heart. And where our treasure is, our heart will be as well. So Jesus sees our giving. Second thing it reminds us of is that this passage is universally challenging. It's universally challenging. This passage is challenging for the poor. If you consider yourself to be poor, this passage is challenging for you because it's not saying that that we are called to be generous only if we can move the needle and color in larger on the United Way giving thermometer a larger gift. You know, only if we can put zeros after the comma, only then does our gift matter. No, that's not what Jesus says. Generosity is a challenge and a call for all who are following Christ, regardless of whether we consider ourselves rich or poor. So even if you have very little money or you're in an era of your life where you have hardly anything, what would it look like to be generous in that era? But for the rest, it also reminds us that our gift matters. But it's not about just giving a set amount or percentage. It's about contributing generously as an overflow of our heart. This passage is universally challenging. And it reminds us that giving is more of a heart issue than it is about an outcome. It's an act of the heart much more than it is about an outcome. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, where did the, 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 the offering that the woman gave, who ultimately collected it? Who is it that emptied those chests in the temple area? The scribes and the chief priests. The very people that Jesus said were robbing and devouring widows' houses. See, sometimes we get, we get concerned because we've, we've been generous before, whether it was generous to someone on the street or whether it was generous to an organization that we feel like has not stewarded those resources well. And we think, I've just wasted these resources. Now, this is not to say we're to leave here and go find the most reckless, wildest, weirdest place to invest the resources that God is asking us to steward. 
But it is to say that if we have given to a person or an organization and they have used it in, in different ways, before God, we still have honored him with the expression of generosity. It's not about the dollar amount. It's about our heart response to God. So what are we going to do? What do we do about this? A few things. First thing, prayerfully consider your current giving. Prayerfully consider your current giving. Just spend some time, go before the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with, the, with your resources that you're asking me to steward at this season of my life? What do you want me to do? What, what do you want us to do, Lord, in light of the resources that you've entrusted to us? Prayerfully consider your current giving. And this is a statement for all of us, not just for some, for, for all, that we would, would ask these questions. Second, talk to your children about giving. Talk to your children about giving. Now, why do I say that? Well, I grew up in an era where there was no children's ministry. We, we all were just in the church service, and, and there was no online giving. There were offering baskets that were passed, and so every Sunday, I, I learned something about giving. I just had a value about giving that was expressed around me, and I, and I saw this. Um, but in today's day and age, we handle money differently. I mean, many don't even carry bills anymore, much less a checkbook. And so electronics have replaced a lot of the way that we handle money. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to pass on to the next generation an understanding of generosity that it's an act of worship before God. So take some time this week as you're praying about this, involve your family and consider what it is that God would have you to do. Third, give regularly to the work of the Lord. As you've prayed about it, as your heart has settled on it, your family comes around it, then begin to give regularly and generously to the work of the Lord. For, for some of you, this will be remembering the gift that you're currently giving. Now, why do I say remember the gift? Because we live in a day and age, again, where it's possible to set up recurring gifts. And that's a wonderful way to follow through on our intentions. But it's also a way that can be out of sight and out of mind. So as you pray through this and you think about it, it very well may be that God confirms how you are currently exhibiting generosity. But, but remember that it's there and, and, and begin to, as an act of worship, on a monthly basis or a weekly basis, however often your gift comes out, just say, Lord, we're giving this to you for your work. But for others, as you pray about this, maybe you're not currently giving. And your action step would be to begin giving. Certainly you can give to a number of wonderful mission organizations and, and causes that are reaching our community for Christ, but also just the opportunity for us to pool our resources collectively as a church to be for our community, to be for the nations, to be for the next generation, and, be, and to be for the needs of our church. That's why we, we have offering as a part of our times of worship, why we have these boxes on the walls, why we have opportunities to give online and through the mail. It's because it gives us a pathway collectively to serve the Lord and worship the Lord together. So what we've seen today is that generosity is a matter of proportion, not of portion. But I want to conclude with, with one 
story. And it's, it's a little, little humorous in the way that it's put together, but I think it'll have its desired effect. It, it, it's impacted me this week as I saw it. It's from uh, an author by the name of Kent Hughes, a former pastor. And Kent Hughes makes this statement. He says, there is a disease which is particularly virulent in this part of the 20th century. He wrote this, obviously, before the turn of the century. He says, it's called cirrhosis of the giver. It was actually discovered about 34 AD and ran a terminal course in a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. It's an acute condition which renders the patient's hand immobile when it attempts to move from the billfold to the offering plate. The remedy is to remove the afflicted from the house of God. Since it is clinically observable that this condition disappears in alternative environments such as golf courses or clubs or restaurants. Actually, the disease is really not a motor problem, but a heart problem. The best remedy is to fall in love with God with all your heart. For where your heart is, there will your treasure be. Would you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to study it, to be challenged today uh, by this great passage. Thank you that in the midst of in the midst of the last week of your life on this earth, Lord Jesus, that you would give us this great teaching, that we might honor you with the resources that you have entrusted to us. Lord, give us wisdom about how you would have us to invest them as we respond from the heart to your great work. And we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.